So I feel like I've been discovered. Oh, actually, you know what? Before I say anything more, if you guys want to move, if there's anyone who's in the sun right now and you would like to kind of just move to get yourself in the shade, no one will look askance on you. Um, just just want to make sure that people know that that's okay. So having said that, um, so I've, I've been realizing in the last few years that I am, I am more often defensive than I would like to believe. This last uh, week, it was kind of an innocuous thing, but it's something that stuck in my memory. Jennifer and I were having a conversation, and uh, what she was talking about, uh, totally in the right. There was absolutely nothing wrong with what she was saying, and, and yet somehow, for some reason, it just rubbed me the wrong way, and I responded in a kind of, I don't know, just grumpy kind of response. And even as I spoke, I, I could feel that grumpiness. I, I knew, okay, eh. And if I had had an ounce of common sense in that moment, I'd have gone, you're acting grumpy. Why don't you just hit pause and say something like, man, that was weird. Can we start over? But that's not what I did. In the back of my mind, I kind of did this strange logic calculation that said, if I'm responding this way, I have to have a good reason for it. And so then I started kind of explaining why I was so bothered and somehow like digging myself in this deeper and deeper pit, making the conversation thoroughly unenjoyable for both of us. Have you ever had a moment like that? I have them much more often than I would like. You know, the thing about defensiveness is everyone agrees that defensiveness is not desirable, right? There's never a marriage manual that says, if you want to be close to your partner, get defensive. Like, we all recognize that it's not good, and yet so many of us do it, right? I mean, there's different ways. We have different kind of strategies. There is the, um, the, the kind of blame shift, right, where it's kind of like, I wouldn't have done this if you hadn't done this first. There's kind of the, the victim, hey, I can't help it. I'm just this way, or it's because someone else did something to me. Or, or there's the trivializing, why are you getting so bothered about something so small, or there's the justifying. If you really understood this, you would realize that I'm the one in the right and you're the one in the wrong. Or there's just the absolute ignoring, right? Where we basically say, I don't want to have this conversation right now. We have so many different strategies of defensiveness. And the thing about defensiveness is we do it when we know that we're wrong, right? Like if, in my experience, when I'm confident that I'm in the right and the other person I'm talking to is just having a bad day or whatnot, I'm able to be actually fairly chill about it. It's like, hey, that's weird. But it's when actually I realize they have kind of a point, that's when my kind of like the shield goes up, the sword goes up, the armor goes up. I don't feel safe and I feel like I need to go on the attack. And of course, the thing about that is when we have our shield and, and sword up, it's not likely that we're ever going to feel terribly connected with the person that we're talking with. Defensiveness doesn't lead to a happy relationship. And, and in my experience, the, the only way forward is at some point, if we can recognize where we are at emotionally, to kind of take the armor off, put the shield and the sword down, come to a place of kind of almost vulnerability, even though we feel threatened, and, and, and kind of take this posture of almost weakness. Oftentimes, I think it involves a kind of posture of, of asking, like, hey, I just messed up. Can we start over? Or that was just really unkind. Would you please forgive me? Or honestly, I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now. Could you help me with this? It's the only pathway I know out of defensiveness. Now, I bring this up this morning because 
as is so often the case, I think the way that we relate to others shows us something deeper about the way that we sometimes can relate to God. I mean, just think about this for a moment. If, if this is how we relate to people that we're close with over something small, how do you think we're wired to relate to the God who is the judge of everything, who sees everything about us? I mean, if, if with a family member, we get all prickly because they remind us that we didn't clean the kitchen, don't you think it's likely that there's going to be an element of defensiveness that we are te- have a tendency towards as we relate to the God who sees all and we know judges all? Now, my guess is we probably never identify it as such, but if we look carefully, we can actually see the very way that oftentimes we construct our lives demonstrate a kind of defensiveness, a protectiveness against God. In fact, it's, it's some of the very things that we were just talking about, about how we show defensiveness towards others. There, there can be times that some of us, I think, probably are, are prone to look critically on others. We, we have an idea of how things should be done, and every time we see someone else doing it, we notice. What we might not realize is that oftentimes the reason we are so critical is because that way we feel like we can say to ourselves, and even to some degree before God, Hey, I know I might be doing some wrong, but have you seen this person over here? Or, or similarly, sometimes I think some of us have so constructed our stories that we just think of ourselves only as victims. Hey, I do this because I can't help it because I was wired this way. Or I do this because of what happens to me. And we forget to be able to recognize that there's an aspect that is our fault. Or sometimes some of us are overachievers and we are just trying to do one thing after another after another because we hope that somehow we can say before God, hey, I realize I did this, but look at all the good things I did. Or sometimes we are ignorers. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to recognize who I am before God. I would rather not have this conversation. Whether we realize it or not, whether we ever admit it to ourselves or not, each of us, I believe, in some way has a tendency towards defensiveness before the God who sees everything because it is scary to be exposed. But the reality is, as long as we have our shield and our sword up and our armor before God, we are never going to be able to experience the relationship with God that we were meant to. We will never know what it means that we are loved that we are forgiven, and that our God is compassionate. We need to find a way out of our natural defensiveness and have a posture of vulnerability before God. So the Psalms, and probably you know this, but I'll say this anyway, the Psalms are the songbook of God's people. Uh, throughout the centuries after they were written, even up until the time, uh, even till the, di- the day of Jesus, and even beyond that, they were the songs that when God people came together, they sang. And their purpose is not just to provide a nice little ditty. Their purpose actually is to is to train us to know how to deal with complicated emotions. So, so if you explore the Psalms, the Psalms explore suffering and how to respond to suffering, how to find hope, how to to deal with anger with our enemies, how to deal with confusion. And 
the psalm that we have here is written to help us to know the way out of defensiveness. How as we recognize our own sin and guilt, we put down the armor and, and we come before God with the right pasture, or with posture. And in fact, this psalm invites us to have that, that attitude of asking questions, specifically two questions. Can you forgive me? And can you help me? So this psalm, um, if you're not familiar with it, it says at the very beginning, sorry, a bug just kind of went down my shirt, which is weird. Um, the very first part, right before you even get to verse one, it reminds us that this psalm is written in like the worst of situations. So it says to the choir master, a psalm of David, when, da- when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with this story, it's, it's horrible. I mean, it, it's kind of, you could imagine it being ripped right of modern headlines. So King David is attracted to the wife of his friend Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba. And, and as he's off to war fighting for David's army, David calls Bathsheba, summons her to his palace. He takes advantage of his position of power and sleeps with her. And a few weeks later, when he gets this simple message, I'm pregnant, he thinks only of what he needs to do to cover it up. A cover-up that eventually leads to the murder of his friend Uriah. And what is perhaps striking is he doesn't seem to have recognized just how great his failure is. He is so defensive, he is so hardened that he doesn't see it until Nathan, this prophet who is bold, comes and confronts him directly. And in that moment, God works to open his eyes and to pull back the defensiveness and to help him to realize what a horrible thing he had done. Now, what do you do when you come face to face with the reality of just how horrible a thing you've done was? If you did something like this, put yourself in David's position. How, what do you do about that? Well, David did a number of things, and one of the things he did was he wrote Psalm 51. This this prayer, this, this way out of defensiveness towards God. Psalm 51 is is famous for being a prayer of confession. And and that's that's right. Um, Except we should recognize, and when we're talking about confession here, it's it's different from how sometimes we think of confession. I think when we think of confession, we think that it's all about just kind of naming all of the gory details of the terrible things we've done. And I think deep down we think we just need to almost punish ourselves, make us feel absolutely awful about it, because if we do that enough, maybe God won't be quite so hard on us. That's not David's strategy here. That's not what David's doing. David does come before God with honesty, but he does actually something more daring than just name the things he's done. Something more vulnerable. He comes to the very God that he has wronged so deeply, and he asks him. He asks two questions. The first one we see in in verses 1 through 9. Notice how there's two different times there's this idea of blot out in verse 1, blot out my transgressions, and in verse 9, blot out my iniquities. That's what frames it. And, And in between, there's a lot of that language, cleanse me, wash me. 
Have you ever had something where you have done something that has so hurt another person, so hurt your relationship, that in the moment, you you would give anything to have that removed from your past. If, if someone could take a power washer or a sandblaster and just completely take it away from your past so that it's not there anymore, you would give anything. That's, that's what David is asking for. Could you please just completely wash this away so that it's never happened before? It's a prayer for forgiveness. Would you forgive me? And then the second request begins in verse 10. You might notice there's this language of a clean heart and a right spirit. And then when you get to verse 17, once again, you have this language of a heart and a spirit. And when he says, create in me a clean heart, it is an awareness of his inadequacy. It is an asking for God to do something for him that he cannot do himself. He is asking for help. Not only does he say, can you forgive me? But he says, and, and can you help me? Will you help me? And it's these two questions that I believe really are, are the pathway for any of us out of defensiveness towards God. They're the questions that I think any of us need to be able to ask God if we want to move into his arms. Will you forgive me? And will you help me? This morning, what I want to do for the rest of our time is to actually look not just at these questions, but to notice how David asked these questions. Because obviously, just saying the words is not enough. It's, it's the posture that we have. And what I want us to notice in this, in this pathway out of defensiveness into the arms of God is, is that these questions are asked with an honesty and with a hopefulness. So first, with an honesty... David himself in verse 6 says, you delight in truth in the inward being. He, he realizes for this to work right, for him to be honest with God, he needs to be honest with himself. And so he says, verse 3, I know my transgressions. And, and in the Hebrew, there, there's kind of an emphasis here. It's like, I myself, I know them. I, I know it. it is always before me. He has come to grips with what he has done. You know, sometimes I think um, when, when you're at odds with another person in a conflict that's not productive, the shift that needs to happen is you need to stop trying to make sure other people see what you're trying to say and, and suddenly be able to pause and step back and, and look from the other person's perspective at you? Have you ever been able to do that where suddenly you realize in this moment, wait a second, I'm being a jerk. And suddenly you feel it. Well, that's, that's what David has done here. He has paused and he has looked through God's eyes at himself and he has said, oh my goodness, I know my sin. Have you ever had that experience where, where you've just felt the weight of the reality of your sinfulness. So he starts with this honest awareness of sin, but even more than that, it's not just knowing he did wrong, it's knowing whom he wronged. So if you continue on, notice what he says. He says in verse four, against you, you only have I sinned, God. Now that seems strange because we can list he has is, he is sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against Uriah. He has sinned against the people of God in terms of the way that he has done this. But David is not discounting any of that. But he is saying, he's recognizing 
that in the deepest sense, the one that we are accountable to, the one we are responsible for our actions towards is God. God is the one who has given us life. Every moment of our existence, every breath we breathe comes from God. God is the one who who sees us and is paying attention to us. God is the one who knows what we are made for and loves us and longs to see that in us. And when we do wrong, whether it's hurting someone else or whether it's hurting ourselves, because all sin is some form of destruction, we are wronging God. I think we hide that from ourselves sometimes even with the way that we speak of our failures. I mean, we say stuff like, um, I'm broken, or I'm messed up. And, and that is kind of victimization language, isn't it? It's just that it happened to me. Or we can sometimes talk about, I'm struggling with, so I've been struggling with anger, and that kind of makes us feel heroic. And it's not like those things are completely wrong. Yes, we are broken, and yes, we do struggle, but there is a deeper reality that we just need to say, I am wrong, I mean, in verse 4, he's saying so that you might be just when you say these things. He's basically saying, I have wronged you, God, and you are right to be angry with me. That is part of the honesty that we see here. But the honesty goes even deeper to an even harder place. It's not just that David recognizes he has wronged God. David recognizes that there is something in him that is wrong. So... When he says, I was brought forth, in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He is not criticizing his mom. He's not talking about his birth. He is saying, from the very beginning of my existence, there was already something deep within me that was wrong. He's recognizing that this action is not just something that happened. This action reveals something about him. And that is also hard for us to be honest about, isn't it? We, we tend to want to distance our actions from ourselves. We ask, why did I just do this? Or, or sometimes we might even apologize to someone and, and we say, hey, I, I don't know what got over me. I was just in a bad mood. And what we really should be saying, although we'll never say this, is normally I have enough energy to hide this side of myself from people. I'm sorry I let you see it. Because it says something about us. Honesty is saying more than just, I happened to do this random bad thing. It is saying there is something about me, about me that is wrong. And that leads David to this final bit of honesty where he recognizes as he sees himself clearly that that means he is helpless to do something about it. Verse 10 when he says create in me a clean heart that word create is the very same language for in genesis 1 in the beginning god created it implies something coming that wasn't there before and what david is saying is it is not going to be in me to find the solution to my wrongness to my sinfulness lord i i am helpless apart from you i need you to come in and do something in me to change me. This, this, is, this is hard honesty that we see in David. 
that, that he has wronged God, that there's something wrong in him, that he is helpless. But it is the only way to get to those questions because we can't really say to God, will you forgive me and will you help me unless we first say, I am sinful and I can't fix it. And so that's what we see, this honesty that is pervasive throughout Psalm 51. But I want to say that as extraordinary as that honesty is, it's actually not the most surprising or, or remarkable part of the way that David asked these questions. In fact, it's not enough. If we're only coming before God with just extreme honesty, what happens at the end? I am awful. I am terrible. In fact, I'm not even sure sometimes that we're able to get to that level of honesty if that's all that we have because it is so terrifying. The reason that David is able to speak in this way is that not only is he honest, but he is hopeful. That, to me, is the most striking part of this passage. I mean, think, we've just said David has just recognized that he has done one of the most horrific things imaginable. And yet, look at where he goes in this moment. You would think that he might be crushed, that he might be brought down so low that there is no way forward. But, but what does he do? Uh, you know, he prays in those opening verses, have mercy, wash me. And then what do you see in verse 7? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Do, do you hear what he is doing? He is he's actually envisioning a moment beyond the moment that he's in where everything will be made right. He's actually envisioning a way where God might work in such a way that even something as horrific as this might be washed away and the bones that right now feel broken might be whole and rejoice. And it's not just here. If you continue on, you see after he says, create in me a clean heart, as, as after he asks for renewal, what does he envision? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He has this hope this, this expectation that, that as awful as this feels right now, that there is something better on the other side. Now, why is he able to have that posture? You know, when, when we are letting our guard down with any kind of defensiveness, what we're basically saying is to the other person, I'm at your mercy, do with me as you will. That's why it's so terrifying. And, and David is doing that, and yet he realizes when he says, I'm at your mercy, do as you will. He knows who his God is. Hundreds of years earlier, when God reveals himself to Moses, there's this moment where Moses hides in a rock and sees God as much as he can see him. And God says, let me tell you who I am. I am the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. This is who I am. If you want to define me, if you want to know the very heart of who I am, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. And what is the language that David uses here? Be gracious to me, O Lord. 
according to your steadfast love, according to your compassion. He, he grabs on to the very words that Moses heard centuries before and says, God, this is who, uh, who you are. This is who you've said you are. And because I know that you are compassionate, that you have feelings, that you actually groan on our behalf when we are hurting, that you are steadfast in your love, that, that you are committed because of this, I will hope in you. I don't think, especially in situations where we're really being honest, where the ugliness is really willing to be exposed, I don't think we are capable of doing this unless we know that the person that we are speaking to, to some extent, in some way, understands and is on our side. You know, um, I said at the very beginning that, that this was a song amongst all the psalms that God's people would sing regularly. And so that's, what's striking to me about that as I've thought about this week is that means that when Jesus was here on this earth, he sang Psalm 51 because he was part of those congregations. So when it came time to sing Psalm 51, have mercy on me, God, Jesus joined in with the rest of the congregation and sang this song and prayed these words to God and he meant them. Not, not because he did anything wrong, but because when he became one of us, he became one with us. He identified with us. And so as he sang this song, he was saying, Lord, have mercy on us, for we are sinful. Wash out our sins. That, that's why he was baptized. John the Baptist couldn't understand, why are you being baptized? You've done nothing wrong. But Jesus chose to enter into our repentance. When he was baptized, he was repenting on our behalf. Lord, have mercy on us, your people. He was praying for us. And when he, he went to the cross, in a real sense on the cross, he was singing Psalm 51 to his father. Lord, have mercy on us. Blot out our transgressions with my death. Wash their sins that they might be white as snow with my blood. That was the prayer that he prayed while on the cross. And our Father, our Father heard that prayer. Our Father answered that prayer because, of course, the very heart that we see in Jesus, the heart that is so for us, Jesus says, if you look at me and you see my heart, you see the heart of God. What I'm, what I'm trying to help us to understand, what I, what I want to understand more deeply, is that if we, when we let down our armor, when we let down our guard, when we are, are opening ourselves up to the reality of who we are before God, I want you to understand that you are absolutely, entirely safe. Because you have a God who understands. He understands so deeply. He has become one of us. You have a God who is on your side. He is on your side so fully. He gave his life for you. It is scary sometimes for us to be open to other people because we are afraid that as we expose ourselves, they might be cruel. But your God is kind and gentle. It is hard for us to own when we have failed because we feel like it's likely to be held against us. But your God says, I will not hold your sins against you. I will wash them and you will be white as snow. 
it is hard to ask for help because we are afraid of what we will look like in the eyes of others, but our God looks on us and loves us and says, I delight to help you and I will give you my spirit. You have a God who loves you, who is compassionate and gracious, and if you can see that, then that can bring you to a place of hope and a place of honesty that can allow you to move towards God. 